You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Toronto Centre's panel on innovative ways to address climate change and the sustainability agenda in the face of COVID-19. I am Baba Kapasade, CEO of Toronto Centre. Since our inception in 1998, we have trained more than 13,000 supervisors from 190 jurisdictions worldwide, focusing on financial stability and financial inclusion, and here you see the latest guide that we published on supervision to COVID-19 world. Uh, it's a comprehensive document and I encourage you to download it whenever you get a chance. Thank you. We, act, we actively examine climate as an emerging risk in our... Someone has a... <laughs> okay. We actively examine climate as an emerging risk in our programming and publications. No longer an exotic concern, integrating climate risk and the need to transform their response has become a priority for financial policymakers, supervisors, and regulators and market practitioners. The COVID-19 economic downturn has generated significant challenges for climate finance. Now more than ever, transformational financial innovative investments, including blended finance, are needed to help industries and communities, particularly the poorest and most vulnerable, mitigate the effects of, adapt to, and recover from the effects of climate change and the COVID-19 crisis. A key to achieving this objective is ensuring financial markets are sound, orderly, and transparent. Sound financial supervision helps to create conditions for stronger financial systems, which in turn generate sustainable economic growth, create jobs, and reduce poverty. Because climate risk impacts financial stability, it is essential that financial sector supervisors understand how to supervise these innovative financial tools, be at the table, be aware of the risks posed by climate change, and take appropriate actions to ensure sustainability. While solutions might appear simple and inevitable, they are by no means easy to galvanize, let alone implement. Today, we are honored to have been able to assemble a distinguished panel of experts, keynote speaker and moderator, who have tackled these important challenges from different angles and are here to share their expertise. You have seen their bios. Welcome to our speakers and panelists. Toronto Centre's mission is sponsored by Global Affairs Canada, Swedish CEDA, the IMF, the World Bank, Jersey Overseas Aid, Comic Relief, and USAID. We greatly appreciate their support. It is now my pleasure to call on our keynote speaker, Tobias Adrian. Tobias is a popular speaker at Toronto Centre events. He's the Financial Counselor and Director of Monetary and Capital Markets Department of the IMF. Before IMF, he was a Senior Vice President at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He's also a noted scholar, having taught 
at highly prestigious US universities and the author of numerous articles in economics and finance journals. Tobias, please take the floor and when you're finished, hand the virtual podium back to me. We're very eager to hear from you. Thank you. Absolutely, uh, very good uh, to see you, Babak. Uh, good morning uh, from uh, Washington. Um, so it's a pleasure to join you today for this very timely discussion on a policy area that's increasingly important for central banks, financial regulators, and supervisors worldwide. Um, climate change is already having an economic impact on many countries. To reduce the risk of future macroeconomic disruptions, countries will need to transition to low carbon systems and build resilience. This crisis presents an opportunity to shift gears toward a climate resilient future by directing uh, investments towards green growth. Um, so if we find the uh, pandemic uh, 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 worrisome and uh, uh, shocking, uh, it is uh, certainly uh, a much bigger crisis that we are looking at potentially in terms of the climate crisis. Um, fortunately, uh, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic has not led to a sustained decline in green financing. Corporate green bond issuance has returned to 2019 levels already. In fact, broader sustainable debt issuance has been boosted in a surge uh, of social bond issuance as the pandemic appears to have in increased awareness for the need to finance such uh, social uh, and environmental uh, projects. Although sustainable finance has grown substantially, it will need to expand much further to meet the large scale uh, financing needs that we are looking at uh, going forward. So in three successive editions of the IMF's Global Financial Stability Report, including uh, this uh, last one that we issued this week, we've documented and analyzed how sustainable finance, uh, climate change, physical risk, and corporate environmental performance are linked to the stability of the global macro financial system. Each of these reports underscores the importance of better disclosure standards to support the growth of sustainable finance and to preserve financial stability. In economic policy terms, climate change is macro critical. We cannot have macro financial stability if we are hit by repeated climate shocks. Central banks and finance ministries have a critical role to play in addressing challenges of putting in place policies aimed to help mobilize green investments and alleviate uh, firms' financial constraints. Monetary financial sector policies are also needed to support the management of climate risk and help cushion climate impacts on output and inflation. The International Monetary Fund is helping countries to better understand the macrofinancial transmission mechanisms of climate risk. There are four main areas uh, that we are focusing on at the moment. Uh, first of all, uh, we are integrating climate risk into the financial stability analysis and stress testing uh, that we do within the financial sector assessment programs, uh, short FSUPs. Uh, over the past decade, one in five, five uh, FSUP assessments has considered climate-related risks already, 
uh, our earlier stress tests have primarily focused on physical risks, such as insurance losses and non-performing loans associated with natural disasters. Uh, but now uh, we have started to also look at transition risk in uh, addition to physical risk uh, so that uh, we are basically modeling the extent to which uh, changes in policies and technologies impact uh, the uh, uh, bank portfolios and losses in the transition uh, to the low carbon economy. And so this is becoming a key part of our stress testing tool going forward. Uh, so we will be expanding the coverage of climate-related stress testing and make it uh, one of the uh, central parts of stress testing uh, more generally. Uh, we're developing new techniques uh, to map global uh, climate shocks uh, to microfinancial channels and uh, to stresses in the financial system. Secondly, uh, out of those four uh, priorities that I mentioned, secondly, we are building awareness and capacity in our membership by introducing an assessment of climate risk supervisory frameworks. So we are supporting the network of central banks and supervisors for greening the financial system. Uh, this is the NGFS that you might have heard of uh, in its work on regulation and supervision and actively engage in discussions with other international fora. Our assessment of supervisory frameworks in FSAPs could also appropriately consider climate risk, drawing on the recently published NGFS supervisory principles and ongoing work by standard setting bodies. And of course, um, uh, we are uh, uh, represented in the FSB and the Basel Committee and uh, work uh, with all uh, the other standard setting bod bodies around the world as well. Thirdly, uh, 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 another big priority is to support climate-related mandatory financial disclosures in collaboration with international bodies. At the IMF, we are working closely with our global partners to harmonize existing frameworks and facilitate mandatory adoption of global climate-related risk disclosures. To this end, the IMF is also co-chairing a work stream in the NGFS on bridging data gaps and facilitating this process through the support and advocacy at the standard setting bodies, including the International Financial Reporting Standards, or IFRS, uh, the Financial Stability Board, and other international organizations. We also favor the development of a green taxonomy uh, as an important complement to climate-related disclosures. Fourth, uh, we are developing advice to member countries on how to incorporate climate change considerations into monetary and central banking frameworks. There is ongoing work on policy development on adaptation of monetary policies to address risks of lower productivity growth, increased volatility of supply shocks, and higher inflation due to climate change. We are also assessing within the mandate of central banks how central bank sustainability objectives should influence central bank operations and the use of monetary policy tools, as well as integrating sustainability considerations into central banks' own forex portfolios. We're contributing to analytical work on climate issues through the participation in the NGFS. 
So those are the four priorities that we are working on uh, within the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the IMF. But of course, uh, the fund more broadly is scaling up its work on climate risk uh, as well. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic reminds us that crisis preparedness and resilience are essential to manage risks from complex events that can have extreme economic and human costs. Taking action to address climate change demands the mobilization of both public and private finance. Financial firms, central banks, financial regulators, and supervisors have essential roles to play in this endeavor. Organizations like the Toronto Center have a constructive role to play as well by pursuing rigorous analysis, developing capacity, and keeping financial institutions focused on the challenges ahead. We are pleased to continue our support for the work of the Toronto Center in its capacity development and leadership training and to partner with it in events on matters of common interest like the one today. Let me hand back to Babak uh, to take proceedings forward. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Tobias. We're definitely very uh, uh, grateful for the support of IMF and I was very impressed with the uh, uh, thoughtfulness of your speech, uh, the fact that IMF is so thoroughly engaged in this area and your department, and as you said, integrating climate risk as part of your various financial sector assessments just makes our job that much easier. So we don't have to go and be the proselytizers. We can actually focus on the work of capacity building. So thank you very much. I appreciate your, your time. Now, uh, before um, Diana disappears me from the screen, I'd like to uh, turn the session to Aditya Nirain. Aditya is also a veteran star moderator of Toronto Center events. I've lost count of how many events he has moderated. He represents the IMF on Toronto Center's board of directors. Just so you don't get any uh, wrong impressions, he also has a day job. He is the IMF's um, uh, deputy director at MCM with the oversight responsibilities for financial supervision and regulation technical assistance function. He's an active contributor to global efforts for coordinating and enhancing financial sector supervision and regulation. Thank you very much, Aditya, and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Babak, for that introduction, and thank you, Tobias, for your remarks. Let's get down to business straight away. We have a lot to cover, and uh, we don't want to run out of time, just like the climate crisis itself. So let me start uh, straight away. Um, our first speaker today is going to be Commissioner Rostin Benyam. Commissioner, we heard the Tobias mention in his remarks the importance of addressing climate risks to ensure macrofinancial stability. And the CFTC report, which has been written under your leadership, has indeed been a very important milestone in highlighting the systemic risk posed by climates to the US financial system, which in turn, it's a cornerstone of the global financial system and therefore has global implications. The report is remarkable in many ways, including in terms of the very diverse group of members that have penned it, and the fact that it is the first to come out of this table from the US agencies. A lot of work, recent work at the national and international levels has focused on these linkages, but financial regulation and supervision are not the first thing that come to mind when we discuss climate change. Why should this be a priority in the larger climate conversation? And why in your view should this be a part of the mandate of the regulatory bodies like the CFTC? So over to you, Commissioner. 
Thank you, Aditi. And uh, I, I want to thank, first and foremost, the Toronto Centre for uh, hosting the event uh, and the invitation to be here today. It's an honour, and specifically with, of course, my uh, fellow co-panelists uh, to discuss these important issues. And thanks to Tobias uh, for those opening remarks. I think it's important, um, if, if you don't mind, Aditi, just briefly to talk a little bit about the CFTC itself. I think uh, within the context of U.S. financial regulators, the CFTC does not necessarily come to the top of mind. Uh, we are one of two market regulators in the U.S. Uh, with our sister agency, the Securities and Exchange Commission. We're the primary derivatives market regulator, so we oversee swaps, futures, and options. Uh, and our constituency is very large. Uh, we we oversee and regulate markets from soft commodities like uh, agricultural products, corn and soybeans and wheat, to metals, to energy products, to financial uh, contracts, futures and swaps uh, as well. So broad constituency that includes um, uh, large financial institutions uh, and then really the key members of the economy uh, that make uh, the economy work on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think the CFTC is nicely positioned to do this report and to think about the climate risks that we face uh, and, and I was very proud to lead the effort. Um, in the absence of work in the US uh, on climate risk generally and, and the sort of intersection of climate change and financial market risk, I thought it was extremely important um, that I step in in my role as a commissioner at the CFTC uh, to put together a group, as you pointed out, ADT, a broad coalition uh, of members, um, financial institutions, asset owners and investors, exchanges, clearinghouses, data providers, and then of course, academics, public interest, and environmental groups to come up as a coalition and, and start to coalesce around ideas and policy that might help us uh, create a more resilient financial system. You know, as, as Tobias noted, there are a number of sort of macro and microeconomic challenges that we're gonna face from climate change. And the unfortunate reality is we're experiencing it on a day-to-day -day basis and year-over-year -year basis with record heat and droughts. Obviously in the US, we've experienced the fires uh, out west and droughts um, in the uh, in the Gulf Coast. So we um, really, in, in my view, this was the right time to do it. Uh, on the international stage, I think it was important for me to send a message to folks that there are individuals who care about this issue deeply. And really, given the uh, politics around uh, climate change, and then of course, thinking about the economy and financial markets, my strategy was to, again, build this diverse coalition so that we could raise awareness and, and hopefully um, transcend the politics of the issue. Because regulator standpoint, and then you know, not speaking as an elected official, but imagine as an elected official, we have to report to our constituents. And when, when you see these uh, weather events happening and you see these direct and indirect economic effects, um, it's natural to see how this can affect the financial markets and then ultimately the productivity of the economy and the health of the country as, as well. And I'm heartened by the work that's been done overseas. Obviously, the IMF and uh, uh, other organizations have been stepping up on this issue uh, for a number of years now. And in many respects, that was a little bit of an inspiration for me to start my work uh, and, and to really sort of put the group together and to get the report um, uh, complete. From a process standpoint, um, I put the, the, the committee together last November, November 2019, so it was about a year ago, um, and, and they produced a report in what I believe was record time considering the pandemic and other issues. Uh, and 
really the report and I would recommend and, and urge the listeners and anyone who's viewing to take a look at the report. It's on the CFTC website. Um, it is broad in scope, it is technical, and it is very, um, I think, um, readable, which, you know, in, in the world of white papers and documents that uh, we often live in, I think that's important for a regular individual, whether they're in, involved in finance or not, or climate or not, to be able to read and understand the relationships and the challenges that we're going to face because of, of, of uh, climate change. I will say one of the first conclusions, and, and I'll wrap up my, my sort of uh, first part with a few points about the report. There are 53 policy recommendations. Um, one of the major conclusions, and this is not a policy recommendation, is that climate change poses a major risk to the stability of the US financial system and the ability to support the economy underneath. A very strong and bold statement, it's upfront. Uh, and, in, and to have the 34 members agree to something of that nature and scope, I think is, is pretty remarkable. There are 53 policy recommendations below this conclusion and some other conclusions. And the first is a price on carbon. And from a risk management perspective, um, you know, the group agreed, and again, a very diverse group, uh, that in order to manage and assess risk, we needed to have a price on the underlying asset. Uh, in this case, carbon and the, the carbons that emitted um, throughout the globe. Uh, no one owns the atmosphere, obviously, from a, a greenhouse gas perspective. Trapping uh, carbon is raising temperatures, uh, is melting snow caps and all the other um, climate effects that we've learned about in the past few decades. Uh, and if no one owns this asset um, and it's not priced, uh, I don't think we're gonna create the right incentives to take action and the action that's needed to reduce carbon as we sort of transition uh, to a net zero economy. So a very profound and I think a very strong statement from the committee, the 34 members to say the number one recommendation and this would be for Congress from a US perspective. And I know the discussion has been going on globally, but that is of the 53 recommendations, 52 are for the regulators. 52 recommendations can get done by the regulatory bodies, which include the CFTC, the regulators and the other market regulators. But the price on carbon has to get done by the congressional body. Within that scope though, and the other recommendations and Tobias mentioned a number of these, um, so I don't want to get into them in too uh, detail, but just to repeat uh, some of the recommendations, certainly focusing on stress testing under different climate scenarios. So this would be for the large financial institutions, certainly the systemic ones. How are we going to build in different scenarios over the course of years in the short, medium, and long term to stress test for different climate scenarios as we approach Paris goals or other targets uh, in, in the decades to come? Uh, disclosures are key. Tobias touched on this as well. Um, you know, certainly a lot of support for the work at TCFD under the Financial Stability Board and other private sector groups. Disclosures from an investor standpoint, from a regulator standpoint, are just critical in order for us to have the information available so that we can allocate capital and really smooth out the transition towards a net zero economy. And this is a challenge with the growth of the ESG movement, uh, with the underwriting of green bonds. Information is just, it, it is the most valuable commodity in this equation as far as I'm concerned. And having comparable, reliable data and information uh, is absolutely critical for uh, individuals, both investors and again, and regulators to make informed decisions so that we could mitigate risks in the future. Within that context, data. Uh, we all have different types of data. The CFTC is actually very unique in the data it holds. Um, and we have to start to sift and look through data and look at data in a different way and work to collectively and together so that we can use this data 
uh, and start to predict in a better way what climate risks we're gonna face and then how we use that data to set up stress tests, to set up different disclosure regimes and, uh, and whatnot. Governance and best practices are certainly sort of a umbrella, I think, recommendation uh, woven into these, these recommendations. Uh, and I'll end an, on another note, which I think is for the Toronto IMF, uh, is international coordination. You know, global uh, climate change is a global issue. It's not unique to any one nation or specifically within a country, any geography. We have to work together. Um, we have to share data, share information, and do this collectively. Uh, otherwise, I don't think the the, um, the 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 attempt to resolve the issue is going to be as effective as it needs to be. Uh, and the last thing I'll, I'll say, and this was a little bit touched on um, by you, Aditi, and of course, Bobak, um, but this document, the CFTC document, which I'm very proud of, and again, encourage folks to read it. It is a risk document in many respects. Uh, it talks about the, fate, the challenges we're going to face as a global community in the decades to come and the consequences if we don't take action collectively. Uh, but on a brighter side, on a more optimistic note, um, there are opportunities here. And I think we have to seize those opportunities. This is sustainability. This is green finance. Um, this is the opportunity to allocate capital uh, in new ways as we are emerging from COVID. Hopefully, you know, we're going to go through a number of spells. We're seeing a bit of a second and even third wave in different parts of the country here in the U.S. with respect to the pandemic. And I know similar situations are happening across the globe. But as we continue work through, think about a new economy going to look like, how are we going to build foundation? Uh, and I think um, climate change is a fundamental part of that conversation. And I think there's an eager desire, both from the retail level, the institutional level, um, to invest, to allocate capital and new technology uh, so that we can build this 21st century economy that will be more productive, that will create jobs. Uh, and that will ultimately create a safer uh, global environment uh, in light of the climate uh, uh, challenges we face uh, in the decades to come. So risks and opportunities, positives and negatives, but a document that, again, I'm very proud of. And I think uh, from an American perspective, and especially for this community that's listening to the, the Toronto Center event, um, the most important thing for me as the sponsor and as the, the individual who initiated the effort is sending a message to the international community um, that we're behind certainly, but we uh, we want to work together. There are there are individuals who care deeply about these issues, and um, let's do this uh, hand in hand because uh, it's going to be the most effective way to tackle these problems. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Commissioner. I think you make a very compelling case for the recommendations that you've laid out and your appeal that we work together hand in hand with this uh, as a global community is certainly very welcome and very much aligned with our own views on the subject. So let me now turn to our next speaker, and that is uh, Deputy Governor Fernanda Necio from the uh, Central Bank of Brazil. Fernanda, we heard from Commissioner Benham about the key role that regulation and supervision should play in the climate discussion via the recommendations that he has made. And we also heard from Tobias about how central banks have begun taking action, including through climate stress testing, through green investments, to contemplating the impact on uh, inflation and output and monetary policy. So given your experience at both the Federal Reserve Bank earlier and now at the Brazilian Central Bank, what do you see as the role of central banks in addressing climate change and the sustainability agenda? Is it possible for a central bank to foster innovation in this area and still carry out its mandate? Well, um, good morning, everyone, and thanks for uh, the invitation to be part of this panel. Thanks for the, the Toronto Center for inviting me. Uh, so uh, we, 
you know, I, I actually think that this whole climate change and so, social environmental um, uh, challenges are at the heart of the central bank's mission. So I can start by talking about the, the Central Bank of Brazil and our mission here, but it is very much uh, positively correlated to the missions of other central banks out there. Uh, so in our um, mission, our two objectives are, are to ensure price stability and to ensure the soundness and efficiency of the, the financial sector uh, in Brazil. Uh, and Climate change and other social and environmental risks are, are, are deeply uh, affecting our, our ability of achieving our objectives. So let's think about climate change, which you know, it's easier to, uh, to resort to examples and, and get uh, to the, this relationship between the missions of central banks and the Central Bank of Brazil and the climate, uh, the climate challenges that we have. So climate-related events have becoming, are becoming more frequent. Uh, we used to think of them as, as um, uh, one-off events, but now they are more frequent and we see uh, them as more permanent as well. And, and it, there are a lot of uh, uncertainty associated with uh, all these climate events. Um, remember that I said that we have two objectives in, in the Central Bank of Brazil. Uh, and climate change affects both of them. So from a monetary perspective, from achieving the stability of prices in, in the heart of our you know, inflation targeting mandate, when you have this frequent climate events, it affects uh, relative prices, right? You, you see droughts happening or you know, fires and all these uh, uh, events can cause changes to relative prices which you know is exactly what central banks, uh, most central modern central banks aim to, which is to uh, to uh, ensure price stability. So, climate events affect um, our ability to conduct monetary policy, and so it all these factors have all the risks associated with them have to be taken into account in our decision making. And then we go to the second objective of most central banks and the Central Bank of Brazil uh, specifically, which is in to ensure a sound and efficient uh, financial system. Uh, well, climate risks and other social environmental risks bring risks to the, the financial sector. Uh, you can think of, you know, a classic example, I would say it's like fires in California, for example, burning uh, out the collateral of many of the loans that are made that are being made uh, and you know droughts and, and floods and so on affecting uh, risks uh, bringing additional risks to, to the financial sector. So it is uh, in our mandate I would say to make sure that the financial system is properly pricing these risks and taking into account these risks in their decision making. So it is very much uh, the case, we believe, that you know, climate risks and social environmental risks affect the ability of, the, of central banks uh, to conduct uh, monetary policy and to ensure uh, the stability of the financial sector. And in that case, we have to act and make sure that all these risks are being taken into account in the decision-making, both for monetary policy and for prudential and, and um, stability concerns. So we uh, we have been acting on that agenda for for some time now. Uh, of course, this is a very 
it's it's relatively new agenda, I would say, for central banks to be stepping in, but we have had a history of acting on this agenda, especially on the prudential side. And what we have been doing currently is to bring in this discussion uh, to, to basically the front of our uh, objective and, and talking about it very frequently, bringing awareness and, and transparency on why this matters and why this is something that we have to be acting on. And I can talk more about the specific agenda of the Central Bank of Brazil later on, but you know, I started by talking about the objectives of the Central Bank of Brazil and ensuring price stability and uh, the stability of the financial system, but that is very much uh, related to this, the, uh, the mandate of several modern central banks in the world. So the way we are approaching this should be viewed as the way central banks, I think, should be approaching the, this issue. Thank you, Fernanda. And we will uh, certainly cut back to the issue of uh, what uh, actions and what uh, actions are being taken by you in Brazil. I think it's very important uh, for, for us to hear about uh, those experiences. Uh, you mentioned, you talked about how important it is for the financial system to be able to price risk correctly, and nobody does that better than the insurers. And so my, I, now I'm going to turn to my next uh, speaker, an old friend of the fund, Connor Donaldson, who is the head of implementation in the IAIS, the International Association of in, in Insurance Supervisors. Connor, the insurers play, of course, a very key role in the financial stability implications of climate-related risks whether it's risk mitigation, whether as institutional investors, whether in, in order to promote risk pricing. And they've also been probably the first off the gate in terms of the work they've done on climate stress testing much earlier. It's almost part of their routine toolkit, as well as the fact that they have now come out with a very key report, which is also looking at the revision to some of the standards. The IAIS where you are, it's identified climate risk and sustainability as a strategic focus at both as a risk and an opportunity. What are the major achievements so far of the IAIS in this regard? And where do you think the uh, future lies with regard to the incorporation of climate risks in insurance supervision? Oh, thank you very much for the kind words and for the, um, I think, really um, important question and, and particularly building off my colleague from the Central Bank of Brazil, uh, where she did mention a number of um, what I think are, are critical points that really touch on, you know, really, the, the value that insurance can bring, um, broadly speaking, to financial stability as it relates to climate-related risks. Um, the IIS was one of the first uh, standard-setting bodies to really recognize how important climate risk management was um, and climate risk assessment was uh, for prudential uh, supervision. We also recognized, of course, that as uh, climate risk um, began to crystallize and the effects of climate risk were being felt, um, that there was significant financial stability related risk associated with um, um, uh, changing climate. So back in 2018, the IIS partnered with uh, the Sustainable Insurance Forum, um, and we were, um, um, I think, very quick off the gate in terms of making sure that we uh, did a thorough assessment of understanding what climate risk meant for the insurance sector and what was um, important about climate risk assessment and climate risk management for insurance supervisors. Uh, this paper was uh, released in uh, June 2018 and uh, building from that we, we, we moved on to the area of disclosures. Um, so we looked at implementation over the course of 2019 of the recommendations coming out on the 
Task Force on Financial Disclosures. And here, uh, what we recognized was that there was, um, I think, uh, a great deal of awareness of the DCFD recommendations. There was a great deal of awareness around the importance of uh, disclosure regimes in, in terms of providing uh, insight and information to the broader market in terms of, of climate risk. But we recognized as well that um, um, there was significant variance across uh, the globe in terms of how far jurisdictions had gone in terms of um, uh, climate risk disclosures, how far jurisdictions had gone in terms of uh, benchmarking off the TCFD recommendations. And I think um, at the same time, um, over the course of 2018 and 2019, there was, a, I think, a great uh, emphasis on um, enhancing um, disclosure regimes. And what we saw was a proliferation of different approaches that were taking place at regional, um, um, national, uh, as well as uh, industry-specific standards. So the conclusions from the paper were really that uh, more could be done in terms of supporting uh, disclosure requirements and, and hopefully bringing uh, a bit more consistency around the world to how um, climate-related financial disclosures um, uh, were, were uh, reported on, um, were published, and uh, hopefully providing better insight to market participants in terms of what the insurance sector itself was doing. I would also just want to highlight that um, at the same time that we were, uh, as an IIS, um, uh, looking at um, climate from the perspective of um, what are the important considerations that supervisors need to have in mind in supervising um, insurers and climate-related risks, uh, we recognized that over the course of the coming years, um, this was probably going to be a topic that increased in importance. So, um, it happened that we were in the process of developing our strategic plan for 2020 to 24 over the course of 2018 and 19. And here we, we um, adopted as a, as a key strategic theme for the association the importance of um, uh, advancing the work on climate risk management, understanding um, uh, how that risk was materializing across the sector making sure that um, we as a, as a grouping of, of insurance supervisors were in a position to be able to provide um, support and guidance to our members. And so over the course of uh, 2020 to 24, we anticipated uh, that this would actually be an even more important part of our work. Uh, of course, um, uh, COVID happened. Um, and uh, with that, um, I think a number of our projects and activities, um, we had to make adjustments over the course of this year and, and really be agile in terms of our responses. We also do a lot of other prudential and, uh, and conduct related work. We also do a lot of work in supporting implementation of our standards. And I was very pleased though, that um, it was clear from the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic that climate related uh, risk uh, was still going to stay at the top of our agenda. Uh, it was something that we were going to continue to make progress on, and we had strong support from across our uh, membership, and uh, particularly at our executive committee uh, level. And here, um, um, I'll have an opportunity to, to talk a little bit about what the forward-looking agenda looks like for the IIS in the coming years. But here, I think it's just important to, to conclude by saying what I can say about the last few years is the really significant shift in terms of people's perspectives on climate risk. And he, 
I think like many other uh, bodies, there was still extensive discussions and debates around um, whether or not the IIS uh, should uh, do more work in the area of climate uh, back in 2017. Um, but between then and now, I can say that um, um, it goes without question that this is uh, one of the key focus areas for the IIS for the years to come. And that is, um, I think, a significant evolution in terms of the thinking and the perspectives of our members uh, and uh, the authorities and, and national jurisdictions that they represent. So thank you. Thank you, Connor, for, uh, uh, for, for making us aware of many of the, um, uh, the work ongoing in the IIS, the plans as well as the achievements so far. And it's now my, I, I'm going to now turn to our next speaker uh, and our next speaker is going to be telling us exactly where the money is going to be coming from for all the work that lies ahead. So Joan, uh, you've heard of the three earlier speakers share their views on how they are supporting the climate and sustainability agenda through their efforts at influencing regulatory and supervisory policies. But you are the expert in getting the money to the projects that need them the most. And your work is very closely aligned with the SDG, SDG, SDG agenda. And as the CEO of Convergence, reflecting on your blended and innovative finance expertise, what are the patterns that you are seeing in climate finance in terms of investor types and the scale of transactions? And what do these trends suggest for those who are charged with making policy on financial and regulatory matters? Thank you very much. And thanks for the invitation to be here. I almost feel like I might've sneaked into this panel because Convergence does not operate in the policy or regulatory realms. And it's actually delightful to hear how much commonality there is in what we're all talking about. Um, so Convergence is the global network for blended finance. And <clears throat> just a, as a quick refresher, blended finance is um, the strategic use of catalytic or um, not market priced capital inside a transaction to uh, attract fully priced commercial money into transactions and sectors and SDGs where it might not otherwise go. Um, and uh, I think where our worlds meet, the regulators, the policymakers, and those of us who are trying to encourage investment is in the subject area of risk. Um, and all of you have been talking about the risk of inaction. Uh, what will happen if we do not assess the risk to current operations of climate change and the risk of operating the way we are to the climate. Um, I think the investment world starts to ask about the question of, okay, if we are to ask, if we are to act, then what is the risk of investing in climate responsive areas? Um, and where Convergence operates and supports other firms is in the developing markets, the, the newer economies, where setting aside transaction specific risk for a moment, the ambient risk of those markets is still very high but that's where a lot of the investment in climate and renewables needs to go. So blended finance has a big role. And um, what we are seeing, and, and by the way, a lot of the um, parties who are using blended finance to get into investing are actually the kind of institutions that all of you regulate, the banks, the insurance companies, and so forth. So what are we seeing? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, climate and renewables. So SDG 13, climate action, SDG 7, affordable clean energy, um, account for about 40% of the transactions we have ever seen 
in the blended finance space. We've captured data on almost 600 transactions representing $140 billion worth of business. So 40% of those transactions have touched on climate. There is a lot of activity in blended finance for climate. Um, about half of the dollar value of blended finance that we've ever measured has been in SDG 13, SDG 7 and, and related areas. So blended finance has been used heavily by those who are trying to invest in climate specific areas. Um, what we also see is that the types of transactions that are climate responsive that are blended tend to be larger than your average blended finance transaction. The median size is like $75 million versus uh, your median size for blended finance deals that we've seen overall, which is more like $55 million. Uh, there are a lot of parts of investing in climate that are very known technology and comfortable for uh, regulated investors uh, to invest in, such as renewables. So for example, solar uh, power pops up a lot in our statistics, followed by hydro, wind. These are asset classes everybody knows about. Um, what we don't see, and, and by the way, there's a lot more participation in blended finance in this area than there is in any other sector that we know of. So if you were to look at banks and insurance companies participation in health or um, in education, it's very, very low as opposed to this. So there's a lot of hope here. There's a lot of interest. Um, and you're seeing it in non-blended areas as well with just green bonds and other activities. Um, a couple of things we don't see, which I would put out there for all of you to think about. First of all, there are very, very few local institutional investors in climate change. Uh, the closest we can see is the Japanese commercial banks investing using blended finance, you know, going arm in arm with say JICA or JBIC into the, into the Asian emerging markets. Um, but that's about really the only appearance we're seeing of local actors. And I think it's pretty important to get local investors into this game because of their strengths in certain areas, their ability to assess risk, their ability to operate in local currency. The other thing we're not seeing is a lot of investment in adaptation and resiliency. And so I think um, Rustin's point about carbon pricing would help because it becomes a, a cash flow, a cash stream in a transaction that can be used to make an adaptation play actually financeable. Uh, the other thing that would help would be uh, more and more uh, regulatory work of the type all of you were just talking about to uh, require reporting on exposure to risks to the extent that an, that an investor needs to explain their current exposure in their current format, in their current portfolio, it's easier for them to move into what is otherwise thought of as new risky unknown areas because the alternative of staying where you are becomes less attractive. So those are some thoughts for you from a non-regulatory, from an investor's uh, point of view. Thank you very much for sharing these, uh, this perspective with us. And you're, uh, you, know, you did mention, of course, uh, you, the, the risk of inaction, which brings this entire panel together. I thought you provided us a lot of hope by telling us that there is uh, that half of the blended finance is actually moving into climate-related areas. But you did point out that there are still some gaps, and particularly the absence of local institutional investors stepping in is something which needs a closer look. I'm going to, uh, before we move to our next round, I have a question coming in, and I thought I would uh, um, 
I would pass it on to all the panelists uh, for their uh, to engage. It gives us a little bit of a break as we move on to the next round. And this, uh, the question is from Kerry Max, and it asks, given the need for public policy decisions like carbon pricing, how are you approaching the challenge of engaging with parties or politics which the platforms are at odds with your findings? And I guess it's, uh, it's a question which we can reflect on a little bit and maybe come back to it towards the end of the, uh, of the next round. Because it's true, and it's true for any uh, public policy initiative that there will be sides which are on both sides of the discussion. So it's not it's not unique to the climate discussion in that sense. It just seems to be a little bit more visible. So we will reflect on this and come back to it at the end of the uh, second round. And let me move on now to the second part of the discussion, and which is uh, I, I thought it would be useful if we uh, take this opportunity to expand on some of the key themes that you have raised in the first round but also to get your views on how the pandemic and the consequent lockdown with its economic impact has influenced your work on climate and sustainability. Uh, for instance, let me, um, uh, you know, last week I was uh, listening into the release of the G30 report uh, and there Janet Yellen drew some interesting parallels between the lessons from the pandemic response from the climate agenda. She said that in both cases, it was important to understand and follow the science. In both cases, it was important to be prepared well in advance. And in both cases, it was important that we align the outcome with broader economic goals. Um, in response to Carrie Max, hi Carrie, it's nice to see you on the chat line. To some degree, uh, the investment world is indifferent to what policymakers say if they, what they say doesn't make a lot of sense. In other words, business is heading this direction no matter what. And you're seeing signaling from enormous investment houses that they're going to go into the business of climate investing regardless. Um, so I think there is some limit of any political party to tell us that black is white if black is not white. Uh, it is concerning and I, you know, speaking not as a policymaker, but as a human being, it's concerning when you see that. But I just wanted to make that point that the ship has sailed. I just wanted to offer you the opportunity to expand on some of the key themes from the first round, also to get your views on how the pandemic may have influenced your work in this climate and sustainability domain. And my first question to you, uh, uh, Rustin Benham, is that you, when you announced your climate priorities more than a year ago, um, you know, the pandemic was nowhere in sight. And today, with it having almost uh, completely taken over our lives and our actions, how do you see the main conclusions of the report differing or remaining the same compared to when you began conceiving this report? Is there anything that has the way the urgency becomes more amplified in your recommendations? Do you see somewhere places where uh, uh, the attention needs to diminish? So uh, it, it's a great question. And I, I think a little bit building off of what Chair Yellen said and the three points about trusting science, preparedness, and the sort of economic response. I, I couldn't agree more. And those are core and fundamental, um, you know, sort of principles if we're going to address climate change uh, in an effective way. And, you know, it, it comes down to the science, right? We have to, we, we, there were, there was plenty of data and information about the possibility of a, a flu-based pandemic. Uh, and, you know, it really is manifesting itself in, in ways that I think many had predicted uh, close enough where if we had, you know, prepared better, I think globally, certainly, but from a PPE perspective uh, and just being able to understand what uh, protocols we have to um, embrace to address them. 
one um, thing that I think is very unique, and I think uh, I would love to hear the others speak about this or if they have thoughts on it, but I've, I've said this publicly, I think a few times, I'd be interested to know if you could go back in time and hypothetically ask financial experts, financial regulators, policymakers, private practitioners, what do you think the relationship is between a health crisis and financial markets? And I say that because there are, I think, still individuals who do not necessarily, and I think Connor made this point, uh, and I've seen this change in the past year, the conversation about climate risk within the context of financial markets and um, the economy has much in the past few months, let alone the past year or two. But there are still, I think, a fair number of uh, individuals who do not necessarily think that climate change can create financial market risk. And um, think about the health crisis and the pandemic and think about, especially from my shoes as a regulator, the, the market uh, events in March and April were extraordinary in terms of the, the way liquidity dried up, the price dislocations between futures markets, which we read at the CFTC and cash markets, uh, both across the globe in the US. Um, obviously, there was a dash for cash because in the shutdown, folks were unsure of what was going to happen. In the commodity space, many of you may recall the oil, the WTI contract dropping uh, in April, I believe, for the May delivery contract from you know $17 at the open to negative 40 by the close. So like extraordinary events in financial markets. And you could see how naturally they have a direct effect on the economy, on productivity, on employment, on financial stability. Uh, all the things we heard from the deputy governor, right? And those are the same core principles of any supervisor and prudential regulator, and specifically a central bank, price stability, maximizing employment and financial stability. So I, I would say within that context, I think is an interesting comparison and analogy is, I don't think many people would have thought what we experienced in the March, April period would have happened because of a health crisis and the amazing response it took from global central banks across the globe and both from a monetary policy standpoint, but then also a fiscal policy standpoint. So let's draw comparisons there and see what could happen if we have what my the CFTC report dubs sort of subsystemic shocks. You're having a little bit of a subsystemic shock in the California West Coast because of these fires to that localized economy because of employment, productivity, the ability to live in certain areas. What happens if you have compounding weather events across a country, across the globe, that turn these subsystemic shocks into larger systemic shocks. And given the interconnectedness of markets and the economy, then you could ability issues and systemic shocks. So I think it's important. Uh, the lesson for me is to understand and appreciate and just to, just to hammer as frequently as possible. Financial markets, the economy are interrelated in our day-to-day -day lives. And whether it's a health crisis or a climate crisis, these things all happen together and we have to be prepared holistically to address them because we don't want to have this continued fiscal and monetary policy uh, intervention. It's not healthy, I think, from obviously a balance sheet perspective, uh, but also from just a, you know, sort of a good government perspective. We don't want these backstops um, frequently happening because we have to prepare ourselves for these events, uh, regardless how close they are to a financial crisis, as we saw in 2008 as opposed to a different crisis, health or climate. Thank you. I think that's a very interesting parallel between the, uh, the health crisis and the financial markets and the climate crisis and the financial markets. In the first instance, I think the unprecedented shock was met by an unprecedented policy action. And so far, uh, the markets have uh, responded well. Uh, and again, I think the point you make about uh, being prepared 
uh, is, is essentially a very key one and thinking through some of these scenarios as is, which is very much on the lines of what the, uh, the IMF is urging through its work as well as the, uh, as well as central banks in general are talking about. And maybe I can now move on to uh, Fernanda again. And uh, Fernanda, we, we, we had agreed that you'd tell us a little bit more about what the Central Bank of Brazil has planned for the climate uh, agenda for the near future and what you've been doing in, in terms of uh, your actions which you've taken already. And maybe you could also reflect a little bit on how the pandemic may have changed your plans in, in this regard. Thank you. I'll actually start by the relationship between the pandemic and, and initiatives related to sustainability. Uh, I think it became very clear across the world that the recovery coming out of this pandemic has to be inclusive and sustainable. So it, it's almost as if the, uh, the pandemic has brought a rethinking about how we want uh, the world to be uh, uh, going forward after we are uh, we get out of this, uh, this crisis. So instead of pushing back the sustainability agenda, the pandemic brought it to the forefront and we keep talking about it and we are seeing an increasing number of initiatives related to, to sustainability and building a better future, future going forward. There are several people that are also uh, drawing a parallel between you know, pandemic events and climate events, which uh, we all know they happen, but they are very unpredictable. So there is some expectations of these events to happen, but you never know when and how big they're going to be. Uh, so I think that's these are the two reasons behind you know the sustainability agenda uh, having gained some strength uh, with the pandemic and not the other way around as some some people might have expected. Uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, so this is something that we have been talking about at the Central Bank of Brazil, you know, related to the recovery going forward, but also we, we understand that, you know, it is intrinsic in our mandate to take uh, into account structural changes in the economy and demand from the society. And we believe that climate change is a structural change in the economy. And I talked a little bit before about how this affects monetary policy and the, uh, uh, and the financial stability uh, side. So we we always had, you know, for a long time actually, Brazil, the Central Bank of Brazil has been involved uh, in in regulation and supervision that are related uh, to uh, climate events and social and environmental risks. In fact, we have several initiatives in that regard in terms of regulation that date from. 2014 and even and even some of them before. So we have been acting on this for some time, but we thought we wanted to bring it to uh, uh, the front page basically and have this inside our institutional agenda and have not only supervision and regulation action, acting on it, but all different areas inside the central bank. So we wanna involve the research department, uh, the, uh, the policy, uh, uh, the policy uh, uh, department and and such and have you know a comprehensive agenda that involves the whole all areas inside the central bank. So in September we uh, we announced a set of measures and, and our sustainability agenda, which I mentioned is it's very comprehensive but by no means exhaustive. We believe this agenda is 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 new, relatively new. 
and it's still evolving across across the world. So we're going to be adding and, and, and changing things as, as we go forward and as we evolve in this agenda. But basically what we have is we announced a set of measures that have initiatives uh, uh, towards internal action inside the central bank and measures uh, targeting the financial system in Brazil. So internally, you know, we are changing our social and environmental policy and reviewing, uh, revising, uh, taking stock basically on everything that we have been done, done so far and also revising it to make it more transparent and communicate uh, our initiatives internally to the public. So we're going to have, you know, an annual report. We're going to implement CFD recommendations. And we want to have this conversation and make it very transparent and, and uh, available to the public. Uh, and we have initiatives that are related to, you know, the uh, conduct of uh, policies inside the central bank, you know, that relate to the management of reserves, for example, and initiatives that are uh, related to uh, both the supervision and the regulatory uh, spectrum of, of the central bank. So we are revamping what we have, reevaluating, taking stock. We announced a comprehensive set of measures. They all have a specific timeline. So this is not something that we want to implement at some point. We do have, you know, steps and, and specific deadlines to make sure that the financial system also gets prepared and starts uh, uh, acting on, on what is coming. So we uh, have changed our intern, we are changing our intern or improving, I would say, our internal uh, policy for social environmental risks in making it so in such a case, in such a way that social environmental risks are taken into account in every single step of the decision making inside the central bank. So every time we're going to make a decision, uh, the board of directors are, uh, are going to have to discuss uh, social and environmental risks associated with, with whatever action we have we are taking into account. So we believe that increasing awareness and transparency and disclosure is essential for this to, to go forward. And we wanted to have that implemented by the financial sector, but also inside the central bank uh, and, and basically lead by example. So the last thing that I that that is inside in our agenda, that is, I, I believe, very important, especially because this is a new uh, area, uh, is that we are improving and increasing the number of partnerships that we have related to social environmental uh, topics. So basically, we believe that you know everybody is trying to act as much as they can on this, but everything is very new. All the measures that are being taken are new. So it is very important to have a very straightforward conversation and partnerships with different institutions like NGFS and, and the CBI, for example, that we just signed uh, a partnership agreement to make sure that, uh, that we stay at the frontier of the action. So that, that's pretty much what we aim to do here. And these conversations and partnerships allow for everybody to gain and get better data and, and learn how to evolve going forward. So it's a very lively agenda uh, and, and comprehensive, but not exhaustive. So this is something that we're gonna be pushing forward for, for, for some time here. Thanks. Thank you very much for sharing these uh, on the ongoing initiatives as well as the thinking within the central bank. I think it's a very useful guidepost for others who are seeking to, uh, to, to, to follow in this regard. 
And I think you also made a very important point about how the pandemic might actually have worked to push sustainability to the top of the agenda, to the forefront of the agenda. And given the ongoing work already on the uh, on recognizing climate change as a structural disruption to the economy, how it's being built into the entire policy framework. So very useful, uh, very useful observations. And I think now I can I can now turn to our next speaker, Connor. And we mentioned this in the first part uh, in, in the first round itself that the IAS with its strategic plan uh, and its focus on climate risk was adopted last year. And the pandemic, of course, has affected your plans in some way and focus areas for the IS's work on climate change, has it changed? Has it been, is it something which you are now being factoring in even more than before? Are there uh, perspectives that you can share with regard to the thinking about what might lie ahead in, on, in the insurer's agenda? Yeah, thanks, Aditya. Uh, and um, I'm very happy that uh, your audio is very clear now. So um, maybe I'll start with a, a bit of a personal anecdote. and. Um, I happen to be from Vancouver, Canada, and um, a beautiful city on the west coast of Canada. Um, but the climate is changing. And when I grew up, I remember distinct seasons. And my family who live in and around Vancouver now, um, they joke that there's really only three seasons left, and that is freezing, uh, flooding, and fires. And it's unfortunate because I think it really captures um, what is a, a structural shift that's taking place within the broader climate. And really, I, I think we can't underestimate the, the broader economic and social impact that these changes are having. And so when I think about the work that the IIS is doing, um, you know, it's very clear that uh, the way that the climate is changing uh, and the impact that this is having on the financial system, the broader economy, and the insurance sector in, in particular. Um, whilst, of course, as I said, COVID has been a, a very difficult challenge, I think, across uh, the globe and uh, even uh, for the insurance sector, it, it hasn't overshadowed uh, the fact that uh, we still need to keep uh, climate risk and sustainability at the top of our agenda. And so uh, we are uh, very pleased to announce that um, uh, just this uh, Wednesday, I believe, we published uh, an application paper for consultation um, for a 90-day period, which is really looking at uh, practical aspects of supervision uh, and how supervisors can incorporate uh, climate risk assessment and climate risk management into their supervisory framework. And here, really looking closely at uh, supervisory review, uh, corporate governance, uh, risk management, uh, enterprise risk management, uh, public disclosures and investment. And it's important that supervisors recognize that they really do have, um, I think, uh, powerful tools that they can um, utilize in, in terms of making sure that uh, the regulated entities within their jurisdiction are uh, taking the appropriate steps to ensure their, their longer term sustainability. Uh, because I think ultimately when we when we look at the insurance sector and we look at the impact uh, that this is going to have on the insurance sector, you know, insurance will continue to be in the business of managing risk. Uh, we will still continue to provide risk transfer services. Uh, the industry will continue to provide uh, risk pricing to the broader economy. Uh, they will still um, uh, be sources of solutions when it comes to risk mitigation. Um, but uh, the insurance industry really needs to be in a position where 
um, climate risk and climate risk management is is integral to how they operate and supervisors have a critical role to play there. So uh, with this application paper, we hope that uh, we'll provide a valuable resource to the supervisory community in terms of how they look at climate risk and how they integrate it within their supervisory approach. Uh, the second thing that I would want to highlight is that we've been doing a lot of work with the Sustainable Insurance Forum. Now, for people who aren't aware, the Sustainable Insurance Forum, I referenced them in the beginning, but I, I, I realized I neglected to actually describe who they were, what they do. Uh, so the Sustainable Insurance Forum is a network of uh, approximately 30 insurance supervisors uh, from around the world who have uh, committed to working together to advance climate uh, risk understanding and um, climate risk assessment and management action. Um, amongst themselves. And we work very closely with this grouping of supervisors. Uh, so we partnered with them on the issues paper that we did in 2018. We partnered with them on the paper that we did with the task force of climate related financial disclosures. And this latest application paper that we're out on, uh, that we're consulting on now, uh, we've worked very closely with them as well. Um, but uh, um, they have uh, also an ambitious work program that we're uh, working closely with them on. Uh, looking at uh, actuarial methods and how actuarial methods are being adjusted to um, take into account climate risk, uh, which is very important. Uh, but one of the topics that I'm uh, most excited about is that actually um, they've elevated the topic of uh, biodiversity loss. And uh, I realize that there's a small irony uh, right now because I'm sitting under a painting uh, that is a, a Canadian Inuit painting. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, the Inuit people are the uh, indigenous community that lives in the north of Canada. And here, you know, climate risk and, and the way that the climate is changing um, is, is amplified significantly. Um, we're seeing uh, significant changes in terms of how communities are um, uh, affected, uh, both in terms of traditional food sources, uh, in terms of biodiversity loss and really seeing the, the negative impact that climate change is having on a, a way of life and a people. And I'm very excited that uh, the SIF has recognized that biodiversity loss is an important topic from the supervisory community's perspective as well. And uh, I'm very pleased that um, you know, we, we will uh, continue to work with them on you know, the topics that they've identified as well and continue to have uh, climate risk and sustainability at the top of our agenda for the years to come. Thanks, Aditya. Thank you, Connor, both for sharing that personal touch as well as also for bringing out this uh, uh, aspect uh, of biodiversity loss and how this might figure in in the, in the discussions. I think it's very important, of course, uh, in the broader environmental discussion to take into account the many different aspects uh, of, uh, of, of the climate discussion. And so I, I, I think your remarks have been very helpful in this regard. And now I'm going to turn for to our uh, final speaker, uh, Joan. Uh, Joan, just to set up the question, uh, the IMFP released our World Economic uh, Outlook earlier this week, which noted that from a macro and public finance perspective, the next decade is the best time for governments to invest and borrow, given that interest rates for many large emitters are likely to stay up low for long, suggesting that an aggressive investment pol policy would be affordable and desirable. And this is in context to climate finance. From the perspective of investors, how has COVID-19 changed investors' assessment of risk in the climate investing space? And let me share before you start yet another publication of the IMF, which is about to come out next week. This is chapter five of the Global Financial Stability Report, which uh, Tobias had referenced in his remarks. 
which paints a slight more grimmer picture at the corporate level and says that the tighter financial constraints and weaker economic conditions can act as a drag on the firm's environmental performance and the COVID-19 crisis could substantially reduce firms' green investments, reversing gains in their environmental performance made in the past years, and therefore calling for more action for climate policies and green investment packages. Yeah, um, the world has gotten riskier. That's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. If you are an investor, everything, the baseline of risk has just gone up and there's about whatever, $700 billion in retreat out of the, the markets that, that we look at. Um, so uh, that's not helpful if you're trying to increase investment in one of the solutions, which is climate action. Um, and I think this is the sort of thing that cannot be cured with government money. We need investment in the trillions. Government money doesn't flow that direction in, in any particular, you know, in, in any one sector. Um, so this has to be a massive call to action for the private sector. So the money needs to be flowing in the opposite direction it is right now. Um, what governments can do is what some of the things you're talking about here as policymakers um, and as regulators is to set up the scene appropriately to reduce the risk as much as possible. Um, we also need collaboration. We need the donor countries of the world to be thinking about how they can strategically use, you know, there's only like a couple percent of official donor aid going into blended finance. That is very precious money. It has to really, really be focused on things that are going to, to move to, to make a difference. Um, and it has to be trying to move capital at scale into major issues. Uh, if I could just go back one step here, we were all talking about um, the increasing awareness uh, of health risks to the financial system and climate risks to the financial system. One of the things that we're seeing as we interact with our membership, uh, the private sector investors in our membership, is that the, the, the dawning awareness that none of these things are columns that you can address separately. The health risk, the health pandemic is a climate related um, event and climate will affect the next health pandemic. And all of this affects gender dynamics and all of this affects social inequity. So as we assess risk, we really need to start being more holistic about it. Um, so that's just a, a side comment. Um, <clears throat> but coming back to climate investment, um, one of the things we're working on is an area of blended finance that is not happening frequently enough which is the, in, the use of uh, the strategic, strategic use of catalytic capital early in project life cycles. Uh, that is to bring to the market business models or sectors that are not currently investable and presenting the market with a potentially investable transaction that can be duplicated. Um, this kind of blended finance the way it works is that the catalytic capital is the only money on the scene at the early stage. It de-risks, it tests out this thesis, it provides the capital for an investment team to take something to market where it then can be invested in by, you name it, institutional investors, private equity funds, whoever uh, the appropriate source of capital is. So one place that perhaps more effort could be put from those who are operating with, with, with donor funds is to put more of it into that early stage intervention 
where the returns are huge. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars spent at a time to create investment transactions that are 100 million, 200 million. We have to get to scale. We have to get blended finance to scale. We have to get investment in climate into at scale. Um, so one thing is early early action, and the other thing is standardization. This is something that Convergence has been talking a lot about, which is once somebody identifies a structure that is investable by somebody who has a fiduciary obligation um, to their, you know, to the asset owner. Once they're operating at in a standard format with blended finance structures that everybody recognizes, you can rinse, repeat, and move a lot more capital than we're doing today. So just a few thoughts for you um, from the investor side of the house. Thank you, thank you very much for that. And I, and I acknowledge the, the call for action that you've, uh, you know, you've just made and the, 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 to the private sector as well to contribute. Uh, we have 15 minutes. We have a few questions which I'd like to raise uh, uh, some from, coming in from the audience. And let me start with one of our earlier uh, uh, directors of the board, Andrea Corcoran, who wanted, who, who asks, what's the role of intermediation and underwriting in blended finance? And when used, who are the ultimate investors? So I guess, Joan, that's one's for you. Sure. Um, we're about to come out with our state of blended finance report on October 29th, which will actually provide an entire catalog of who is in, in blended finance um, you know, whether it's private equity firms or institutional investors or, or financial, trans, uh, financial investors. So perhaps I'll just point you toward that report in the interest of time. Um, but we do look at who the ultimate uh, holders of, of the capital are. Uh, and I will tell you, financial institutions show up very frequently in our statistics. Private equity firms, not so much, but they are very, very good at doing unusual transactions and getting them to market. Um, so we do have a full answer for you on October 29th when we release our, our annual report. Okay, thank you for that. And now I have a question for the, uh, which I, uh, maybe the, all our panelists can take a shot at this, but uh, Commissioner, maybe you might want to start. And this is a key policy proposal is that full pricing of carbon emissions. When this has been tried, for example, in France, it has led to strong negative public reaction. Is education the strongest tool to get acceptance? And how do the panelists think this is going so far? What else can be done to get support for the substantial price increases that are warranted? And Commissioner, I know one of the main recommendations of your report is the one about the carbon pricing itself. So maybe we can start with you. Thanks, uh, Aditya. I, I mean, first and foremost, I would agree that yes, education is, is the most important thing. Uh, when you pose this question or the frame of it earlier, my immediate reaction was, you know, it's forums like this, it's, it's discussions, it's debates, it's um, raising awareness about what exactly the goal of a carbon price is and how to implement it. And ultimately, and, you know, Joan made uh, very good points about the private sector um, allocation of capital and the importance of that and how we need more allocation of capital towards the space. But I do think, you know, the government um, has a huge role in this in, in terms of creating incentives. You know, the tax code in the US uh, for decades has incentives for a certain type of energy production. Uh, and that made sense from a fossil fuel standpoint decades ago uh, to spur innovation growth and, and I think energy independence. But as we're you know dealing with the climate crisis and we're dealing with transition, uh, we have to create different, different incentives can be through fiscal policy, but certainly incentives need to get done through a price on carbon. And, you know, there's uh, several, um, 
proposals out there. And you know, we we talked about Chair Yellen, and she's a part of the Climate uh, Leadership Council, which has the Baker Schultz model, which is really like a, a tax with a dividend. Um, and it's a you know, I think I believe, and don't quote me here. I think it starts about forty dollars a ton, and then it's a gradual increase over time, depending on carbon emission reductions. And 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 I say those numbers not to outline them specifically, but more just to frame uh, the the lesson and how we have this conversation to um, hopefully convince and persuade and and engage in dialogue with folks who don't necessarily agree with this is to you know educate and and to show data and facts and to understand that incentives from an economics perspective will really be the best shot for um, moving capital in different directions and smoothing out the transition. I would say personally, and um, Tobias mentioned this at the beginning and the report, the CPC report goes into this in depth. There are many common terms used in the context of climate risk and the conversation about climate risk, physical risks, transition risk, physical risks, notably being obviously what we deal with um, uh, from an infrastructure standpoint, from a home and property standpoint, uh, from an environmental standpoint. But the transition risk is very key. And that I think plays into this carbon price issue is how do we transition the economy from one that is largely based on fossil fuels to alternative sources of renewables in a short amount of time, you know, relatively speaking, if we're thinking about Paris goals and whatnot. Uh, and those transition risks can be uh, quite detrimental if we move too quickly or on the uh, flip side, if we move too slow, then we're gonna have climate risks on the back end of the horizon in the medium and long-term. So um, my, my sort of, um, efforts have been focused, and I, I mentioned this at the beginning, is building broad coalitions. Joan mentioned the ship has sailed, right? When you have this many private market participants saying, we need to move and talk about climate risk, it's hard to um, to really debate it in many respects, but certainly to, to question it. Uh, the Business Roundtable came out recently supporting a carbon price. A lot of large oil and gas companies are supporting a carbon price, banks as well. Um, and, and I think that momentum, that coalition building, as I said, was the thrust and strategic goal for the report is if we can build the largest, most diverse coalition from ag, from energy, from industry, from finance, it's going to break through the political uh, friction and then just the social friction of, you know, having to really shift the way we think about energy production uh, and then ultimately the way we, we live our lives. Okay. Fernanda, would you like to comment? Um, so uh, we uh, we see uh, uh, the carbon uh, initiative, the carbon initiatives that are being taking place in several pieces of the world as a as a good opportunity for Brazil as well to be uh, to be in that market. Uh, it's not something that we are working on internally at the central bank, but we know that there are several several initiatives and efforts. Uh, in, in fa the financial sector, in the government, and, and other players in Brazil in trying to establish and develop um, uh, a market for, for carbon. Uh, the same way that we see uh, our sustainability agenda, I think the, the challenge here is to proper the proper pricing of, of risks and, and carbon. And, and that's something that I think, you know, as I mentioned, is a good opportunity for, for the country going forward. And and we know that these conversations are happening at the moment in the country. We have been trying to participate as much as we can as listeners and trying to follow uh, uh, the discussions and, and provide some inputs whenever we feel 
we feel it's needed. It's not something that we have in our own agenda, but we do believe that that, that will be an important step uh, for the country going forward. Thank you. And Connor, uh, uh, in addition to this question, there's another one which has come in. You might like to take a shot at both. This one, what are some of the key accomplishments to date in creating better consistency around financial statement disclosures for climate risk? Are there specific challenges in achieving broad consensus or slowing the adoption of disclosure standards? And again, I'll pass this along to the rest of the panel as well, but maybe kind of this one, and if you have anything to say on carbon pricing. Uh, there's, certainly, I, I, I have uh, actually a couple of things to say on, uh, on both of them, but um, uh, I'm gonna be very careful when I take off my IIS hat and offer a personal mm -hmm. perspective. Um, so in terms of um, uh, broader consistency around disclosures, oh, absolutely, this is something that I think um, um, we are, as an association and a global association of insurance supervisors, very aware of the need for. Uh, just last year, we had our global seminar. It was organized in uh, Argentina. Uh, we had um, a lot of industry representatives um, in the room, as well as our stakeholder community. And uh, we had a panel discussion, and one of the panelists uh, asked, what are what really needs to happen to see movement in this area? And what was interesting is that in an audience where I would say probably two thirds of the people in the audience were from industry, uh, they said, uh, absolutely, it needs to be uh, globally consistent and it has to be mandatory. And that is, um, I think, um, a reflection of the fact that um, I think increasingly industry recognizes the challenge uh, that exists with a patchwork of different uh, disclosure regimes that exist and um, some of the risks associated with um, uh, quote unquote greenwashing. So I do think that there is uh, work um, that we've been doing in terms of our collaboration with the Sustainable Insurance Forum to advance um, the, the thinking from the insurance supervisory community's perspective around what are the important things that we need to see in a, in a, in a disclosure regime uh, of course, this is something though know that all standard setting bodies, um, I think, need to take seriously as well. So um, I know that uh, our peers at uh, IOSCO, which is the standard setting body for uh, capital markets and our colleagues at the Basel Committee, are very aware of the importance of disclosure regimes, particularly around climate risk. Uh, we also know that the Network for Green in the Financial System, who uh, we're involved with as an observer of, um, of, the, of that network, um, has also identified uh, disclosures as an important topic for further consideration. And, and I think we're still at the stage where people are learning and, and, and getting a better understanding of, of what really needs to be there in terms of the data, what really needs to be there in terms of the disclosures. And I think only then can we really come up with, um, uh, I think, a framework that, that works in terms of um, um, providing the, the information that we need. Uh, as well as being able to hopefully um, be a framework that would uh, drive consistency uh, internationally. And, and I think that's really vitally important if we're gonna see progress in this space. I would offer just a, a personal perspective uh, now, if I can be so indulgent to ask for the time to do so, is um, you know, I really do believe um, that the only way we're gonna get uh, somewhere with uh, relation to disclosures is that it, it has to be mandatory. Uh, and it has to be based on an agreed set of international standards that uh, the global community has come together to recognize as being uh, important. There's still a lot of groundwork that needs to go into that, but from a personal perspective, uh, voluntary disclosure regimes just don't work. Uh, the second thing that I would offer is just on carbon pricing. 
Uh, I'm very lucky to have worked in a government back in 2008 that um, saw the importance of moving forward on a broad-based carbon, uh, carbon tax, and I think they were the first jurisdiction in North America to do so. Uh, and I can say that, um, at least in terms of how they approached it, um, was to approach it at, from a revenue neutral perspective, which was to gradually increase the carbon tax over time um, as uh, something that would be done in a similar way to consumption taxes and uh, lower um, uh, at an equal amount um, taxes on savings, taxes on income. And it had a, a lot of appeal at the time. And I think uh, what we've seen is that they've been able to increase the carbon tax uh, almost annually since then. Uh, there's not significant opposition to it, and I think it's worked well within the broader Canadian framework that's been developed. So uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to offer a perspective on that as well. Thank you, Connor. We're down to our last couple of minutes. Uh, I'm going to offer Joan the chance to step in on this and any of these other questions. There is another question on insurance which has come in, and I'll send it to you separately. We won't have time to pick it up now. Thank you, Joan. Very briefly, I just want to give you an anecdote. I was in a um, conference a year or two ago of um, institutional investors. And there was a US government official on the stage who was talking and he kept emphasizing how um, dampening the effect would be on business if we impose all sorts of regulations that encourage uh, green over fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. And somebody in the audience stood up uh, and this is an international uh, gathering. So it's sort of funny, it was an American pension fund manager who stood up and said, would you please just issue the rules? Put them out there. Everybody put out common rules to, to Connor's port, point. Everybody just tell us what the rules are, tell us what the regulations are, and we'll get on it. We know how to do this. Business will react. What we want is constancy of regulation, clarity of the rule set. Don't worry about us. We're on it. We just want to know what the rules are. Would you please make some and carbon pricing? If you come out with that, we will handle it. We just want to know what the rules are. So, um, the idea that anybody needs to be coddled in order to do the right thing is something I would like to take off the table. There is a lot of, to use my firm's name, convergence around these things. Um, and we just all need to get on it. Um, so just a, a personal anecdote. And, and this met with wild applause from the other uh, institutional investors in the room. So it was a, an interesting moment. Okay, thank you very much. We've come to the end of this session. I, I must say I've learned a lot. I think uh, there've been some very important uh, um, outcomes of this discussion, I might say. Uh, um, uh, Rustin, you, you brought, brought home the point that uh, addressing climate-related risks in the financial system is a matter of, uh, of, of uh, these, these risks are systemic and it's a matter of urgent policy importance. Fernanda, you brought out the fact that this is in any case fits into the mandate of the central bank. So there should be no thinking about whether central banks have a role in this or not. And climate change itself is a structure of dislocation of the economy, which will have an effect on relative prices and therefore becomes part of the central bank's mandate. Connor, you brought out, of course, the key role that insurers are playing in this discussion uh, and, and, the, and the role that insurance supervisors must take uh, must play and the strategic vision that they have already displayed in terms of the uh, what they put out for public consultation. And Joan, you made, of course, a call for action for private capital to support government initiatives in this regard, but more importantly, also for an internationally consistent regimes, uh, whether it be taxonomy or disclosure, because the private sector will adapt. 
With that, I'd like to thank you all on behalf of both the Toronto Centre and the International Monetary Fund for participating in this discussion. We are, as the IMF's World Economic Outlook points out, and it's joining the chorus in saying that we are at a tipping point in the climate discussion, and it's now or never. So thank you for participating. Thank you thank very, you. very much. Thank you.